Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Mauve Moon. She's going to be talking to us about trauma. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Mauve. Thank you. Mauve, you've had a life of trauma, and now you're working with trauma victims. Mm-hmm. Let's begin with your life experience because I know you've had a great deal of trauma in your life, I believe starting when you were as young as four years old. Yeah, um, I, when I was four, my mother chose to foster children, which is a selfless act um, in and of itself, but it resulted in you know older children staying with us and uh, you know, they just reflected what was going on in their life and what happened to them onto me. And that resulted in sexual assault um, that, you know, went went under the radar and was accepted um, and wasn't dealt with when I was that age. Um, my mother was also physically and emotionally abusive, but... Um, she did all the all the things that a mother should do, you know, provided, um, but not the things that you need from a mother, you know, the care and the the nurturing. Um, I went into homelessness at 16. I had a hard couple of years. Honestly, that was a really traumatic time in my life. And then at 18, went into the sex industry, started speaking to sugar daddies and at 20, fully went into it, escorting. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. You left, you became homeless at 16. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Did you just run away, leave your home? Uh, It didn't just come, it wasn't like a snap decision. Um, Me and my mom cannot coexist. We, We just, we can't. She it's it's like a hatred that can't be resolved and it resulted in you know a lot of physical violence when i was a child but as i grew older it it never it didn't stop but actually you can't see me and nobody on the podcast can see me but i'm a big woman and when my mom decided to start tackling me as a teenager it it backfired on her i was no longer um you know, I was no longer squishable. I could no longer be just be pressed under the thumb. So I moved out when I was about 15 and moved in with a friend. Um, but at 16, I had the, I was old enough to go into a um, a homeless hostel for, you know, vulnerable adults aged 16 to 25. And um, that's what I did. That's what I did. So you voluntarily went to this homeless uh, hostel where they had, um, uh, other teenage children who did not have homes? Yes, in part voluntarily. In part, I was constantly being kicked out by my mother and I just made the decision, you know, I actually have a right now to, to leave. And yeah, there was other, yeah, there was other homeless teenagers. Uh, tell us a little bit of what it was like li- living in that homeless shelter. You know, it was better than my home. <laughs> it, if I'm honest, it was it was difficult. I lived there, so I lived in emergency accommodation um, initially, which um, which is all all those rooms are located on the ground floor of the hostel um, for the short term residents, um, and it's just a room with a bed, a toilet, um, and a desk, and then a window which has a bolt on it, and adjacent to the window is a ten foot wall. Um, so it was it was quite. It was depressing and it was dark, but it was better than being, you know, in a constant state of danger. You know, I felt at least I felt safe there. Um, and I lived I lived in the shelter for about six months before I moved into supported housing um, with another homeless girl. And. Yeah, that escalated into various other living situations, but that was up until I was 18. So did the homeless shelter people help you with find the support or what you call the supported housing situation? 
No, actually, that was just um, an agreement that me and um, the girl made together. We decided that we would, you know, apply for housing benefits and government funding benefits. Um, and she happened to know a family friend who was a landlord. And we went, you know, we moved into a house together. Yeah. And then how did you eat and support yourself? You were 16 or 17 years old. Yeah, so I worked um, underhand. So when, well, the law when I was that age in the UK, it's no longer the law, it's recently been um, lifted. But it was that if you are on housing benefits, you can't earn over five pounds a week because then you're not entitled to your housing benefits. And that keep, that kept a lot of people in a loop of, not not ever finding work because you would lose your housing benefits. So I worked um, as a freelance session musician, actually. Um, I, you know, that was my passion when I was growing up. I was, I was trained classically and um, I worked in the studio and I sang. And what instrument did you play? I sang. Um, yeah, I was also, I was also playing guitar at the time, but not, that I was not recording at all. <laughs> but you were singing? Mm-hmm. So somewhere along the line in this very, very difficult home situation, you were also taking singing lessons enough. As you said, you got classically trained. So you had training in your background. Yeah. Yeah, I was. So I was training from... Um, I joined a choir when I was six, and then the choir tutor... Um, who was a professional opera singer, took me on as a private, um, you know, client. And um, yeah, I was really lucky to be trained and go through that. Um, yeah, my mother did provide, like in that sense, she was providing and she was she was quite wealthy. Um, and I was given lots of opportunities to, to learn and, and develop skills when I was a child. Um, did you and say yeah. your, did you say your mother was wealthy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a police officer. I see, a police officer. Wow. Yeah. And so now you're you're in that supported housing. And where do you go next? And what happens in your life? From that supported housing, um, I actually had a huge fight with the girl I was living with. She. Um, yeah, she really hurt me, um, and I ran away. I ended up living in a caravan for a while in somebody's garden, and then I moved back into the hostel, actually. I went, I went back to the place where I knew I was safe. I moved back into the hostel, um, and I lived there for another few months until I turned, you know, until I finished my diploma at college, um, and I went to university. I moved down to Guildford, Surrey, and I... Um, yeah, I was. I got into the Academy of Contemporary Music in Guildford. And did you go to college there at the academy? Yeah. And they give you a place to live. Um. So I found student halls, um, a student housing. Okay. And then what happens next? You go to that school. Did you c- complete it? No, I didn't. Um, Something happened. Yeah, so I, I I did go to university for the first year. I was really, really committed and I was, um, you know, I got a boyfriend and I thought, oh, I'm starting this new life. I thought this would be a new chapter. I changed my name to Maeve. My name's not Maeve. My, um, my birth name is Rhiannon. And I thought, right, I'll move to the bottom of the country as far away as I possibly can. I'll leave Rhiannon behind. Her life was just so difficult. And I'll start this new chapter in this very wealthy part of the country um, it was kind of, you know, a fantasy. I had, I had a fantasy of, uh, you know, relocating would fix me inside. Um, it didn't. I just went somewhere else. But all of me was there whilst I was in Surrey. Um, and I did a year and a half of the degree. Um, I did finish the degree with a higher diploma, but uh, about halfway through, I turned just as I turned 20. I broke up with my boyfriend and I signed up to seeking arrangements um, properly and started meeting men. You you signed up. What does that mean? I signed up. Uh, like I made an account. Pardon? I made an account. You made an account. What does that mean? You made an account. 
So me and another girl from university um, have had these delusions um, of signing up to Seeking Arrangements, which is a sugar daddy website, and meeting these men and just making loads of money and traveling and shopping and that delusion that um how old were you how old were you at the time yeah i just turned 20 at that point you just turned 20 okay mm -hmm. so you go on the website you've never done anything like this before in your life i had been speaking to men from 12 yeah had you been engaging in sexual relations with them or just talking? Just talking. Um, my first intimate relation with an older man was when I, uh, just after my 16th birthday, um, I'd been being groomed by a teacher because I had this, I got some kind of validation from speaking with older men online um, and it just... It backfired, you know, I met, have you heard of Amigo or Amigo? No, how do you spell it? M-O-M-E-G-L-E. M-O-G-E-L-E? O-M-E-G-L-E, Amigo. O-M-E-G-L-E, Amigo, no, what is it? So it's an online chat room where you get paired with somebody random from across the world. And they never pair you with people nearby because it's quite dangerous. So... Um, you know, if we went, if, if I went on Amigle and you went on Amigle right now, there's, you know, there's a chance that we would, that we would match in this chat room and we would be able to see each other and we would be able to connect. And you are so far away from me that there's no danger of anything happening if you were a dangerous person or if I was a dangerous person. Right. Right. And I ended up meeting a, um, a man who was 26, who lived right at the bottom of the country in Devon. Um, and he was a teacher and we connected and he spoke to me from 15 uh, until I was 16 when I just, I happened to be in Devon for one night and yeah, um, it, you know, it, it went, it went south. He, um, I met him for a drink and he um, spiked me and um, took me out of the town, drove me out of the town and um assaulted me he spiked you with a drug in your drink yeah we went to a club and we were drinking wine and then he assaulted you out in the country mm -hmm. and then i was actually with my father at this my father um who, who's who is was i was staying with in devon and um when i came around from this horrendous situation um i looked at my phone and i had like 20 20 missed calls from my dad i didn't really know my dad this was this is why i think i went on that date because my dad couldn't stop me because he'd never been in my life really and this was the second time i'd ever met my dad and we'd gone down to devon to collect my brother um and this guy drove me back into the next town he'd driven me out of town to his to his grandparents' house, and they knew what was going on. It was really, it was really bizarre, really bizarre. Um, and yeah, the, obviously the police were called, and I was put under the um, Child Sexual Exploitation Act, and I was under twenty four seven supervision for a while, um, so that I wouldn't start engaging with this teacher because he was a teacher. He was a teacher, and he taught people my age. Yeah. So, so that was somewhat of your entrance, would you say, into sex work? Yeah, I think it set the precedent in my mind that sex isn't a, isn't anything that should be valued. That it can, that I can use it, or that my body isn't, isn't a divine. You know, this this thing can be used as a commodity because because I'd gone through sexual abuse as a child. And then again, in my teenage years, twice, I just, I, I didn't have the, the mindset that sex is, you know, precious. So when I was 20, uh, duh, if I can make some money out of sex, which I already don't enjoy due to my past experiences, I might as well make some money out of it. I enjoy money. I knew that. So it, it made sense to me, it made financial sense to turn my body into a commodity.
And so it was at about that time that you got together with your friend and enrolled in this uh, sugar daddy program. Yeah. So tell tell people who are following this mm-hmm. what that what, what was it like the first time you connect with a man, an older man yeah. uh, via the Internet. And then at some point you get together. He either sends you a ticket or you meet somewhere. And what was that very first meeting that you ever did meeting a complete stranger for the purpose of selling your body as a commodity? What can you remember what that was like for you? Yeah. Clear as day. Um, It felt exhilarating at the time. I felt like I'd taken back my power. Um, I felt yeah, really powerful. And so did the other girl. And the way that it went about was we connected with this man and we agreed because we signed up as a duo. So because we looked pretty similar. And so we thought, you know, we'll be a you get two girls. It's like a fantasy. We'll be a we will be a fantasy. We're living in a fantasy and we can become a fantasy for other for other people. Um, so we we met this man and we we agreed we wanted a thousand pounds between us split between us for the night and that would include going to a hotel going out for a meal and then having sex with him um and we wanted 500 each and he said well how about 800 and the champagne's on me so he drove up from southampton to guildford which is about two and a half hours three hours um and you know, I think it I think it went exactly as everybody expects the fantasy to go. We went to a really lovely hotel. Guildford's a very wealthy area. Um, we had champagne. We went out for Thai food. We went back to this like penthouse suite that he booked in the Harbour Hotel or whatever it was. And we had a threesome. And he paid us each £400. And I remember... I remember walking out the next morning with her in our heels, just feeling kind of gross and kind of naughty. I kind of liked that feeling, actually, like, oh, I've just made 400 pounds from having sex. Um, And then just looking at the money and being like, that was the easiest money I've ever made in my life, ever. I mean, seriously. When When I was on benefits, I was on 57 pounds a week. And here you just made 400 pounds for hanging out in a hotel, eating high food, Thai food and having sex. Right. 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 It makes sense, doesn't it? It it makes logical in that sense. Yes. Yes. Given that it went well, that you weren't beaten or hurt or 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 kidnapped or Mm -hmm. all the terrible things that possibly could happen with a complete stranger off the Internet. It was uh, it was really quite something. And you were with a friend. So there was a certain amount of safety involved in being with another person, because I would think that it's a lot more difficult to do something terrible to two people than one person. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that was that was also part of our thinking. You know, if we do this together, we were both nervous. We'd never done this, but we both had the the fantasy of doing it. but We'd never done it alone and this time it was very real when I was speaking to men on seeking arrangements at 16 I didn't the 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 interest was there but the intention wasn't I wasn't going to go and meet these men at 16 I had enough on my plate I was trying to pay bills and you know work and go to college like I was I didn't have time for sugar daddies but I wanted I was interested I was interested and yeah we did it And the element of safety was totally there when we did it together. Okay, so that was your first experience. You walk out of there with your friend. You're both smiling and happy with 400 pounds each. What was next on your agenda for the two of you? (laughs) Uh, Well, that man um, invited us to America on that night. And we both agreed and uh, didn't really think that it would go ahead. But it did. It did. He um, I actually had a connection with him um, on that first night. She didn't. Um, and she had her own. She'd started meeting men on her own kind of in the background. So um, I developed a relationship with him for the next three months. 
um, he he got me a chauffeur and chauffeured me down to his place from Guildford um, once a week to to date and sleep together and so forth. And he paid me a weekly allowance. And then we booked these tickets and we went to America, all three of us together. Okay, and then you land in what city? Um, we landed at JFK and then we went to, he had a lake house in Connecticut. Okay, so now you're living in Connecticut, the three of you. It was, it was literally only, I'd say a week to a week and a half we were there. But um, well, it, was, it was interesting. You were there in Connecticut for a week, did you say? Yeah, and New York. We moved to New York. We left him in his house. Um, we went off together. Why did you leave him? It sounds like a wonderful arrangement. It does sound like a wonderful arrangement. And that this is where I start to like share in this is this driving force to share information online about this kind of world is that of course it's nice when it's nice, but I met a man on the internet, got on a plane with him, went to another country um, where it was illegal to do what I was doing. Um, and I was underage. I was 20 years old. I wasn't even legal to drink um, in America. And he ended up being aggressive. He, he was just this... He just transformed into this person that I'd not met. But had I really met him in three months anyway? You know, and I, and I trusted him for some reason. Um, he took us to this biker bar. It was Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving Eve, he took us to a like a rock, a rock biker bar full of motorbike guys. Um, and I started speaking to somebody and it really, really upset him. Um, but the night before we'd gone, uh, he'd engaged with the other girl without me, but that wasn't okay because I was in a relationship with him. He was not in a relationship with her. So it's either it's like a, a genuine threesome type of thing. We either all have sex together or he only has sex with me. That's kind of how those things work, um, how normal threesomes work anyway. Um, and I started speaking to somebody at the bar and he didn't like that. And he left us. And she got spiked at the bar. And she collapsed outside of the bar. And people started gathering around us. Somebody, and we looked really, really, really out of place. Like we were two. She was Finnish. I'm English. We looked bizarre in this bar. We really, really stood out like sore thumbs. And somebody called the police. And the you know, the bouncer called the police uh, and the ambulance. And I was not interrogated, but I felt like I was being interrogated. I had like three cops stood around me going, what are you doing, ma'am? And I was like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an escort. I don't know. And I'm just staying here and the man's left us and I don't know what to do. And I'm really unsafe. And, and yeah, I spent the next like eight hours in hospital with her. And it was just a mess, you know. Uh, we went back to the house collected our things and her sugar daddy booked us a cab from his house to, to New York and set us up in a hotel there to get us away from him because uh, it was just it's bad. So that was your first experience and it went really badly when you got to the States. Yeah, well, but it then, was dangerous. It was so dangerous. But you then know, you know what you we're were, doing. But then you had embarked in that life. Yeah, because there's something really tasty about that danger, you know. When you're uh -huh. not doing something fulfilling with your life, um, you know, I completely turned my back on who I was and I became this Jasmine, Jasmine. And she was, she was fun and she was crazy and she, she was just a dangerous woman. And I loved being her because it, I was basically able to live in my ego all the time all the time without, without care in the world for anybody or anything and just live this high life of excitement without, without any care for anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what, what happened in the next chapter? Because what we're moving towards is how you became a coach to help others 
So we're yeah. going to have to, we have a, few, a little bit more time. We're going to finish up you know, the history of how you got there. And then we're going to talk about your coaching. Yeah. So I, I realized that it was too much um, emotional investment. And what I actually wanted was money. So I decided that the easiest thing to do was to become an escort. Um, rather than wasting all this time with sugar daddies, I'll just become a prostitute. And that just cuts out all the other bullshit of dining. And I did that for um, about a year and a half. As a, free, as a freelancer? <laughs> yeah, freelancing. And um, did, you, did you do that in the United States or did you go back to England after that first? Yeah, I came back to England. Um, I came back to England. I worked for my student accommodation, my uni house. I then moved to London. I then worked in a few brothels. Um, I trained as a dominatrix, started working in a dungeons and working from my apartment in London. And then eventually I had an ayahuasca journey. Um, I went on an amazing ayahuasca retreat and I just had this revelation that I had all these soul ties to all these men. I had an addiction and I hated my life. And I just went, I'm never doing this. I gave up everything. I gave up my apartment. I took myself off adult work. I took myself off seeking arrangements. I closed down my dominatrix account and I moved back in with my mother. And I went, I'm starting again. And I started Profit From Trauma at that point. I just started blogging about my life experience and giving advice on Instagram. And it's just grown into this amazing community and movement and platform that I'm, I'm really honored to now be a part of. So just to back up a bit before we move into this new community, mm. tell us a little about what it was like working in a brothel. It was, so I worked in two and they were both vastly different. The first one was in the center of London and the men that I was, the men that I was getting were very, poor and it was that I like they'll take everything that they can get from that situation um and it was we had cameras and you know so it, we, we were like we were in, a, in an apartment and then adjacent to our apartment was the pimps so they were just right outside um and they were nice you know this this pimp was nice um I'm very lucky again um he happened to be this like six foot seven Polish guy who was gay and he was, he was lovely. And he was like, I'm here to protect you if you need me. Um, he paid me fairly and that's that. Um, the second brothel was in Bradford, which is in the Northwest of England. And again, in a very, very poor area, but this one was different. I was working with a Romanian girl who I could tell didn't want to be there. And I don't think she had a choice to be there. And that situation ended up, um, I was ended up being, I was kicked out of the brothel um, without my passport, without any of my luggage, without any of my money. Um, and I was left with a client who very kindly took me to a warehouse and let me stay in the warehouse with him overnight because he was married. You know, he had kids and he, <laughs> he couldn't take me anywhere else, but he felt obliged to look after me. And yeah, it was just a mess, really, because I was really ill at the second brothel. I had tonsillitis. I was on my period. I had copper poisoning from the coil and the pimp still expected me to work. And typically, how many men would you have sex with a day in the brothel? Yeah, so um, they would book an hour and an hour costs 200 um, and that's including anal, 140 with without anal. But the goal is to get them in and out within 15 minutes so that you can sleep with at least four, four men in an hour, you know, and then you can... And you can make, you know, you can make upwards of a thousand pounds in a in just one day's work, which is it's really good. Um, obviously, you want to get to keep five hundred pounds of that because five hundred pounds goes towards the pimps. It's fifty fifty. So you'd make five. And how many days a week did you work? Um, I worked there for a mm, about a week and a half. Um, they're never well. The ones in the UK aren't long stays because it's illegal here. It's illegal. We we can't have brothels here. But no, in the United States. But you had you were working in the brothel. What I'm saying is, mm. for how long did you work in the brothel? 
about a week and a half. Oh, not for months or years. No, 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 no. No, about a week and a half. Yeah. And during during that week and a half, you were you were working five, making about five hundred pounds a day. Yeah, or thereabouts. So you, you saved up some money, but at four no. men, no, you didn't. And no, at, no. At, at four men an hour, you were having sex with maybe twenty or thirty men a day. Yeah. Depending that, on how long you work, so you can work for five hours and then be satisfied with what you've made. Yeah. So, you know, the, you know, the body does have limitations. Um, and actually at client three, my body is at capacity already because that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot on the physical oh body. That's God. a lot of friction. And also in that time, I'm not having sex because I want to have sex. So I'm not self. My body is not self-lubricating. Yeah. I'm having to force her. I'm forcing my body to do something that she doesn't want to do. Yes. And so she's she's constricted and she's tight and she's tense. So it's harder. It's even harder at that point. Um, yeah. So then you left there and that's when you went out for a while freelancing before you had the ayahuasca experience. Yeah, I just now, well, I worked at two brothels and just went, I'm not doing that again. That was just no, wasting my money. Wasn't freelancing very frightening in terms of who's going to take care cover for you if the man is a, is an animal is aggressive yeah but honestly the money was more important to me um and i didn't have any protection i didn't and that did that did result in rapes it did and it, it resulted did. in a lot of assault and the the thing about people think that it makes fine like in like i said it made financial sense right so if you work three uh three hours a week you can make enough money to survive for for the week, right? So if you work eight hours a week, you can make the money to survive for the month. But that's not taking into consideration that, you know, out of those three clients that you take in the day, the second one rapes you. Then what do you do for the rest of the week? Do you force yourself to continue working? Are you so shook up? Are you so in fight or flight mode? Are you so shut down that you physically can't work? Or do you force yourself? And at that point, it stops making financial sense because when that's your only source of income, you have to force yourself to continue having sex. If you've just been assaulted, you don't want to have sex. What do you do? Do you go broke or yeah. do you force yourself? And yeah, yeah, I understand. I don't know if David told you before the interview that uh, I'm a doctor of clinical psychology. Mm. You're aware of that? Mm -hmm. Oh, she yeah. told, he told you up front. OK, so the, these these things aren't foreign to me, but they're yeah. always important mm -hmm. for the public to hear. Mm -hmm. Very important for the public to hear, because there are very few rights for sex workers and very few people or organizations are looking out for sex workers in any way, as you well know. Mm -hmm. So something then occurred that you took this ayahuasca and had this revelation. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit about how that came about? How does a how does a sex worker suddenly take ayahuasca and open up the door of a complete change of life? Um, so I was although I was making unconscious and unintelligent unintelligent decisions i was aware that i was an intelligent woman and i did have prospects and i you know i did have a potential future if i wanted to make one and throughout my final year of escorting i started to research what's going to fix me like what could possibly fix me what could get me off weed what could get me off cocaine what could stop me from doing this and i came across ayahuasca retreats in Peru. And I was like, ah, oh, that's it. Then I need to go to Peru. That's what I need to do. And I'll take ayahuasca and my addictions will be cured and I'll be back to normal. You know, no more eating disorders, no more weed addiction. Everybody's happy. Brilliant. And uh, that's not how that works. Um, again, another delusion, but a more promising delusion. Um, 
in the brothel actually in London I met a client who had mother ayahuasca tattooed all over him and he was just this it was just divine timing this man just walked into my life and I was like what are those tattoos and he told me he put me in touch with the shamans and I was able to go to retreat in the UK and I was very ill when I went to the retreat and I was so ill I was so ill and I was just like completely depleted like I felt like I was at the end of life at 21 and it was unbelievable that that feeling of just I don't see the point anymore um and I sat with with the medicines with San Pedro with mescaline with you know with ayahuasca DMT and cambo and um I just saw the reality of my life I found reverence for my life I actually saw and felt reverence that my life is important. And I, I just saw hundreds and hundreds of men, just men on a wall, just hundreds of faces. And I was just looking at all these faces and I was just, I've got soul ties to each one of those men. I'm tied to each one of those men and they're in me and I'm carrying all of their energies every day. And I can't do that to myself anymore. And I made the decision then, that's it. I end it. I end it now. I stopped smoking and I quit. And I don't know what I'll do, but I just got to make that decision. <laughs> and how old were you when you made that decision? Probably 22. Yeah, because I, I was only in the industry for two and a half, two years, yeah. two and a half years. You, you, you got out early before, while, while there was still a way to get out. You're very, very, very fortunate. Yeah, very, yeah. Very it, was, it was like a whirlwind. And I think people think when I talk that I was in there for, you know, that I was a prostitute for 30 years or something. I've got to remind you, I'm only 23 years old. I can't have been doing it for that long. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> That's exactly right. By the way, as an aside, my own daughter uh, just uh, left this past week and mm. she's spending a, a month at the ayahuasca temple in Peru. Oh, wow. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So now tell us about how you came to what an interesting title, the prophet, prophet <laughs> from trauma. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's totally new. So please elaborate on prophet from trauma, and we particularly want to hear you talk about profiting from sexual trauma, because that's part of your expertise personally. Yeah, so exactly your reaction is exactly what I'm looking for from people. I want you to look at that title and go, what on earth does that mean? That's so heartless. What does she mean profit? She definitely means financially profit from trauma. That's what she means. This woman is financially profiting from other people's trauma. And that's not what I mean. I, but I want you to think that so that you click on my name and you come to my account and you see what I'm talking about is actually you can profit from your own experiences in life. You can take the trauma that you've gone through, the experiences that you've gone through, and you can, you can hold them on a pedestal as absolutely invaluable experience and you can profit emotionally you can profit spiritually you can profit financially but i'm not trying to profit financially from your trauma um and it's post-traumatic growth that's that's how i see it and it's not it's not discarding the trauma that you've gone through but it's acknowledging that it's happened and you can use that to to advance your own life and advance the lives of people around you, if you want to, if you want to. And that is what you teach in your classes or you teach to the people who come to you? Yeah, I'm, I want you to acknowledge your trauma and what have you learned from that? Be introspective about what you've truly learned. So when, you know, when we look at, when I, when I have a client, when I have a one-to-one, -one, we're looking at, you know, a bit like a an action that they take on a day-to-day -day basis that isn't supporting them that isn't supporting their well-being it isn't supporting their life and we look at well what what's the root of that let's go backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards and what started that core belief and then how can you 
change that core belief and how can you one understand it and and have that kind of compassion for yourself like have be empathetic for yourself um and then how can we transform that into something that's going to advance your life rather than rather than harm it and just having compassion for yourself in that moment can be the advancement that you need it can it can just be that it doesn't have to be some great action where you you know go and start a charity and jump out of an airplane and raise money it doesn't have to be any of that compassion can be the pinnacle of of that introspective moment that we have together well where did you learn all this you talk just like a psychologist i read and i listen and i care and i've had such a drive to become a psychotherapist for years that's been it's been a huge interest of mine um and i i keep applying to places like you know i got accepted into university to do um an ma and then i got um offered the opportunity to do a master's degree in um contemporary art psychotherapy but they rejected me because they offered it me on the condition that I give up all of my social media activism because that's not good for the human ethics board here in the UK. It doesn't look good for the university. It doesn't look good for the ethics board. And I said, actually, I'd rather keep my dignity and I'd rather keep my platform than work with an institution that tries to shut down my human experience. You know, Viktor Frankl was, he wanted to publish his book anonymously but then made the decision not to do that because actually his human experience and people being able to recognize him him as a person and his human experience simultaneously helped them and you are you referring to his book from death camp to existentialism also it's no, also I'm meaning. well it was the same book it was published okay. separately as as man's search for meaning ah okay yeah that's the book i'm referring to yeah, I had the I had the pleasure of knowing him a bit while he was alive. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's so incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and just that, and I just, I just felt this overwhelming no come through me when they said, "You know, give me the ultimatum." I just felt all the no's of all the people that have have changed their own life and have changed the world in some way. Um against the odds and against what people told them. And I said, I'm not doing that. Um, and I applied for Gabor Mate's Compassionate Inquiry course. Again, I was rejected. Why did, and, why did Gabor turn you down? Um, because I'm not a professional. Um, oh, I might be able to help you with that. I, I know Gabor. And, and uh, I, didn't, I think he opens up some of his classes to people who aren't professional. And what about uh, uh, Van der Kolk? Have you looked into Van der Kolk? Um, I've read the start of um, The Body Keeps a Score, but I've not looked into any courses. Okay, um, there's Van der Kolk and Peter Levine's group. They also have courses. You know that, of course. Yeah, they're probably all worth taking. And and um, if you want me to, I can, uh, you know, I'll, I'll look into that Gabor thing. I can't. I, I don't know why you got turned down for that. That uh, I don't think he, well, and lack of credentials. I, I wasn't aware of that. So tell us now um, about your social media platform. Is this, do you get uh, people who are sex workers now who are starting to come to you for, um, for coaching on changing their lives? And tell us about that, please. Yeah, I do. And I also have mothers of sex workers coming to me who need support because their daughters have gone into it and they don't know what to do. They feel powerless in, in that moment. Um, I do have sex workers coming to me and I think they come to me because they're able to relate. And that's a really, really key thing for them. I think a Sex work is is very very much misunderstood, and actually the the mental processes that that go on when you make the decision to you know sell your genitals to all and sundry 
if you don't understand that um and you you know if you don't understand that as a therapist it can be hard to relate to a client or a client can feel like they can't relate to you or that they don't even trust trust sharing their information with you that's what i have learned from the women that come to me that might not be the case across the board obviously i can't know that um but yeah, they're able to be honest. They're just able to share their entire human experience with me and feel that I'm not judging them and that I totally get it. Um, and that I'm, you know, I'm not trying to change them. I'm not trying, I'm not seeing these people as as broken. You know, we're not doing goal-orientated therapy, or I'm not, I'm not a therapist, I'm a coach. And it's just working with your process, you know, and currently their their life experiences is being a sex worker and I accept that and let's work let's work with with where you are at right now and not try to change it but you know go in like why if, if you're not happy with it why and the change will come about on its own when we address the why it must be very gratifying for you to be helping particularly sex workers after the experience of that couple of years in your life and some of the horrors that you face. It's, it is. And I feel different things arise within me. Um, sometimes I feel really triggered um, to, I, my money switch might switch on in my own brain. When I see these girls making so much money, part of me goes, damn, God, I remember what it was like to do that. And <laughs> I remember making that amount of money in a day and sitting around all day. But actually, I remember also the really hard side of it. Um, it's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my entire life. If I'm honest, I, when I, I wrote a course called 15 Days of Introspection and I ran it twice with women across the world. And when I go to bed after running a class, and we've done like two two hours of introspection, which is a lot of introspection for the, for the girls that have just never looked inside themselves ever. Um, I go to bed just feeling complete. And I've never felt like that. I've never felt so full in my heart. That's marvellous. And is that a way that contributes to your own personal healing from the trauma that you have gone through? And what else are you doing to, to heal your, your own personal traumas? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I've started uh, the Moving Into Wholeness course by Process Work. Um, so that's a nine-month course, which will lead me into the diploma uh, at the end of this year. And that is world work and somatic experiencing and um you know, getting into your body, which is very, very, very difficult for me. Um, but it's so valuable. Um, I've actually just, we actually just finished the first module yesterday, uh, which has been a three-day module training course. And I've never been so aware of what my body is saying. And that's the most beautiful thing. And I hope that once I finish this course, I can pass this back out into the world and and teach and guide from this now healed perspective or healing perspective um rather than just from my ideologies and things that i've learned about trauma um and i also i work in a spiritual retreat center so i'm in i'm in the community i'm you know i'm living it i'm living the prayer i'm living with the medicines i'm living with the with the plants with ayahuasca with San Pedro, and I'm helping people, you know, as they come through the center. And what's the name? What's the name of the spiritual retreat center? Are you at liberty to say? No, You're not. Okay, fair enough. Um, what else? What else would would we like <clears throat> people who are participating with us? What else would we like them to know? For example, would, would you recommend? <clears throat> the work of a sex worker under certain conditions to a young person? Is there a, are there ways that this could be a, a real, a business without the trauma or is it inherent in selling one's genitals that there's going to be 
psychological trauma that's going to be not worth the amount of money that one makes? That's a difficult question, and uh, I get asked that a lot, and I always want to just put myself on the knife's edge because I don't know what's right for anybody else other than myself. I can only ever speak from my subjective experience, and I can't be so objective as to say, well, it's right for this group of people and it's it's not right for that group of people because I don't know. I don't know what's going to be right. And although it was a huge learning experience for me and very, very valuable, I wouldn't take it back. Did I also need to go through all of that? Don't know. Don't know. And I wouldn't recommend it to anybody because if you end up going through the same experience that I went through or even a similar experience, and that's highly, highly, highly likely, given the nature of humans, because we're not just... People forget that when we're talking about sex work, we're, we're just putting like this blank cover on all the people that are actually paying for it. But all those people have different intentions. And out of 10 people, how many of those do you think have malicious or vicious intentions towards you? How can you possibly know? And you take that risk every single time you meet a, a, a client, every single time you don't know and you're probably not protected. So I would never recommend it. Um, I think that's one of the most important points that any person thinking of this kind of work needs to take into consideration. I think you said it beautifully. Of every 10 people who are hiring your genitals, mm -hmm. what percentage of them are gonna be aberrant? And they're gonna be aberrant enough to do you damage. Yeah. And those percentages, go on and on as you stay in the business so that the likelihood of something horrendous happening is going to increase and increase and increase over time with the, with the, with the numbers. Precisely. And it only takes one abhorrent person to make the decision to harm you to affect the rest of your life. Yes. And that's it. It takes one experience. I think that's a great place to stop the interview. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. <laughs> oh.